these are foundational societal assets which have massive impact on our collective well-being and development yet we currently don't value them yet we don't have them as asset classes so that gap is the place of arbitrage and that's entirely the focus that we have at dark matter is how do you start to reinvest in those critical common goods of the 21st century that are the foundation of our actual where the source of value is This is Curiosity That Matters, the show where we explore ideas that help shape a better world and talk to the people behind them. I'm your host, Nadim Shuker. My guest today is Indy Johar, founding director of Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs and senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation. Indy is also one of the co-founders of Impact Hub Birmingham and Open Systems Lab. Indy? Thanks for coming on to the show. Delighted to be here. You're an architect by training. You're also a thought leader in systems change, the future of urban infrastructure finance, outcome-based investment, and the future of governance. Are those identities, like the architect and then this thought leader, indivisible? Um, I, yeah, I'm uh, slightly always problematized by those things. I suppose what I see is how we make places and how we make places in the 21st century. And the implied world that we see around us, the physical architecture, the world that we see, the idea of property, the materiality, is all functioned by an implicate order, a dark matter. The rules of how we understand the world, the rules of ownership, the rules of governance, and how we capitalize and finance the world. So the kind of landscape that we see around us is a function of those values and frameworks. And if you're going to innovate and make a different place and a different world, we are going to have to transform that dark matter. So the governance, the contracting, the way we finance is going to have to be transformed to change the world around us. And it's very clear that the world around us is fundamentally problematized. We are right now self-terminating ourselves as a civilization, and climate change is just a symptom of that whether it's biodiversity losses, whether it's plastics in the water, we are contaminating our systems, but also contaminating our common goods to the point of self-termination. So for me, you can see those things through a, through a whole section of separate layers, but I see them as integral frameworks that are requiring a transformation. You called that transformation the boring revolution. So in the I am curious, what is the boring revolution and why does it matter? From my perspective, when we talk about revolutions, we usually talk about what I would call material, physical, real-world revolutions. But the moment we're in is a much deeper revolution, a revolution that sits in our theory of how we relate to the world, how we understand it, what it means to be human, and how that's constructed in our institutions and our frameworks of how we, how we relate and structure our relationship to that world. So that's why I call it a boring revolution. It's a revolution that sits behind the world that we see. And I think these sort of revolutions happen periodically. I would argue maybe even the Renaissance and the Newtonian Enlightenment were revolutions of ideas that were so fundamental that they transformed the world around us. And I think we're in a similar moment. And this moment is rooted in, in a reimagination of what it means to be human a reimagination of what it means to actually how we relate to the world. If, if the Newtonian enlightenment and the kind of previous world views were all about disentangling and separating humanity from the world around us, and that separation then gave us a landscape of dominion to be in control of the world, and thereby allowed us the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of ownership, those things had to coexist, the separation had to be manifested, and then the separation had to allow for the theory of dominion, humans are in dominion of the world, and then that, that allowed for theories of ownership and discovery to be manifested. Those conceptual frames, those conceptual deep revolutions of how we relate and understood our relationship with the world, were then manifested in theories of property rights, manifested in theories of how we orchestrate our relationship of ownership, it manifested every aspect of the world that we see around us. 
And I think we're in a similar moment where no longer is our separation from the world viable. In fact, the separation of the world is leading to us. The illusion of separation of our relationship with the world is leading to a self-termination. And what we're seeing is a systemic entanglement at the planetary scale. And that entanglement is requiring us to reimagine a world beyond separation and thereby a world beyond dominion and thereby a world beyond classic forms of ownership as a theory of governance. And this, to me, is a deep code revolution, a revolution which is boring in the sense that it is a revolution of hard ideas which transforms everything, transforms our relationship with everything around us and how we make the world around us. At the Creative Bureaucracy Festival last year, you said that the boring revolution is fundamentally a bureaucratic revolution. Is that an element of, of its boringness? Absolutely, because when we talk about separation, when we talk about actually dominion, and then when we talk about how that manifests in theories of ownership, what it's rooted in is classification. What it's rooted in is how we understand and structure the world around us. Maps, cartographies, all the way through to classification theory have allowed us to understand the world through making things discrete and particular rather than, rather than actually focusing on its relationality. So our bureaucratic frameworks, which are built through an analog world, so in an analog world, what you have to, you know, in an analog paper world, the most efficient way of organizing was our classification theory, that classification that allowed for divisibility, that allowed for the racialization of the world on visual form formats. When we know, you know, in terms of DNA levels, you know, the continent in Africa is far more diverse than any, uh, by, uh, in sort of genetic level than, uh, than the rest of the world. So the illusion of those separations, that classification theory is fundamental, and that allowed for all the violence that we saw around us. So it's rooted in our theories of bureaucracy. And I think our theories of bureaucracy are being transformed at two levels. And at one level, yes, the science and the kind of knowledge and our knowledge of our entanglement, our awareness of actually the systemic risks that we're facing as a result of it, and the re needing to recode our relationship with the world. But that's facilitated by, I think, what we're entering is a new age of computational bureaucracy, and a computational bureaucracy which is allowing us to look at more contingent, high-fidelity, pixel-level views of the world, which allows for a new worldview, which is much more relational, as our computational capacity allows us to do. So I think The revolution is actually the transformation of our theory of bureaucracy from analog to deeply computational bureaucracy, which will then transform much of the world where we account for the world and where we structure the world. And I think that those two things are combining. So a new need, it combines with a new capability to open up, I think, a new class of governance that operationalizes at a planetary level that embraces an entanglement at a fundamentally different level. I can't help wondering of an inherent contradiction in in that you're talking about the ability to really go granular at the pixel level, yet you talk about a planetary scale. And I think in, in one of the discussions we previously had at some point, this idea of place-based innovation versus actually we are the planet, the planet is us, the we are, anything we do has to be on a planetary scale. Can you help me bridge a bit this idea that to look at, a, at things from a pixelated level that allows us to connect things at a planetary level. Yeah, so when, when you look at things through a pixelated level, it isn't about looking at it from the boundary of the pixel, but the relationality of the pixel. That's one thing. And I think it's a bit like quantum physics in a sense that at, at the pixel level, when you look at it through a relational landscape, you get an emergent function, which is completely different from a red line boundary at the geographic level or at a different scale. So I think that's one aspect. Second thing, I think there's a false dichotomy of local versus planet. And I think when you look at it through a relational lens, the local is the function of the relationality and interdependency, as opposed to being a function of some theory of proximity, uh, physical proximity. And I think we have to start to become much more relational in our com conversation. So if you look at the metabolic flows of, say, this room, this room is a function of iron being mined probably in somewhere like Australia, and is, is a function of a global planetary flow, the silicon chips probably almost certainly somewhere in Taiwan, and you've got glass probably being produced in somewhere places like Egypt and other places. 
So when we start to look at the world through actually our planetary metabolic flows, the coffee that I'm sitting in, maybe maybe somewhere in South South Africa, uh, South, South America. So when we start to look at the world through the kind of planetary interdependencies, we start to recognize that we are existing at a planetary scale. The clothes that you're wearing, the clothes I'm wearing, the cotton is probably almost certainly from Bangladesh or Thailand or somewhere like that. So I, I think we're living in the illusion of the local, not recognizing our planetary interdependencies. And that's the crisis that we're facing, is that we're still organizing the world through an idea of nation territories or territories when actually our global interdependence is much more significant. And why that's important is I think one of the big crises that we face is that there's a 19th century view of the world of our divisible frameworks of how we divide and able to operationalize the world by creating divisible competition. But I don't think that increasingly that's possible. And I think one of the big crises that we face is as we state, look forward, is whether we achieve mutually assured thriving or mutually assured destruction. And as we drive this transition, there is a real crisis, which is that competition theory, as we go through this transition, will almost certainly lead us to some degree of mutually assured destruction because of the prevalence of weapons of mass destruction in different formats. So the prevalence of those frameworks are going to are going to actually undermine our capacity to make this transition if we inflict vast harm in the world. And that's why I think we have to start to absorb new strategies of mutually assured thriving, recognizing our deep entanglement that already exists, albeit that our worldviews and our institutions don't understand and aren't able to operationalize and comprehend the level of entanglement that we're already operating in. So many points to maybe build on. I wanted to go back to your use of the word discovery earlier. Just to be precise, I was referring to the doctrine of discovery, which was effectively to do with giving rights to to the discoverer, um, the rights of ownership and embodiment, and to exclude the theory that the native indigenous people had any theory of ownership and governance onto that land. And that asymmetry was a kind of, was a right to to that framework. And that allowed for colonialization, that allowed for all sorts of things that happened in the world. And in a way, that was a kind of conceptual conceit that allowed for certain things to be operationalized. And that that required us to, to recognize other humans as being less than humans in order for that doctrine to be manifested. So it set on forth a whole bunch of train of thought, which I think we're still struggling with in many formats. But I suppose I'm not a person that sort of says that this is a, I I think this is a materially finite world, but an immaterially infinite world. I think our theories of discovery and our theories of, uh, of, of capacity to be able to explore what it means to be human, to explore actually intangible possibilities of our collective intelligence, which I think are going to be extraordinary. I think we're going to be moving into a mass world of actually inter- an intangible economy of society where care, complex cognition, uh, augmented realities, assisted intelligences are going to be an extraordinary uh, transformation of human capacity, should we approach and embrace a world of mutually assured thriving. And I think that requires us to actually operationalize kind of a planetary collective intelligence. And people like James Lovelock were saying beautiful things like this. He was already saying that the planet is, if you look at it from its, you know, the fact there's a network of satellites and the computational capacity around the world, institutions around the world that we're becoming self-aware of the destruction that we're doing to our context that is a sign of the planet becoming conscious. So I'm also sitting here with quite a degree of hope that actually even this even this debate is a function of a planetary consciousness that is emerging. And it's not about you and me. There are millions of people around the world talking about something similar. So what we have is an emergence of a planetary capability, which I think is extraordinary. And that planetary capability consciousness is a function of machine-human ecological feedback systems. So I'm sitting here with quite a lot of hope And I think the kind of possibility of discovery at the level of planetary consciousness is extraordinary. So I think there's a kind of, there is a vast space open to us. I don't believe that we're entering a a game of finite worlds. 
and and conservatism in that sense. I think there's just new landscapes, new abundances that are made possible, but not necessarily new abundances based on material consumption and material addiction, but actually new forms of human capabilities, which I think have to be unleashed. I remember an article that was written by Sofia Robele from the UNDP, where she, I think, spoke of human capabilities, at least in development, not being seen through a relational lens. Again, I quote also Sam Rye about imagination infrastructures. He called it actually relational infrastructures. First, to the social connections, interactions, and collective intelligence that underpin a community, network, or group's ability to collaborate, solve problems, and drive change. It is an emergent framework of trust, shared values, and common goals that allows individuals, groups, and organizations to work together effectively, pool their resources, and amplify their impact. I mean, he goes on with the definition that was his. Is that what you've referred to at a human capacity and planetary consciousness? And in that is that where it transcends actually this question of place that I asked you about before? Absolutely. And I, I also think it sort of transcends our theory of of assets and divisibility. So when you look at, I even hate the word collective intelligence, let's say kind of societal intelligence or relational intelligences. Mm. What it transcends is the theory that actually it's my intelligence versus your intelligence. Because actually what the real function is, I sit on the shoulders of millions and if not billions of people over time that we are just an emergent function of, as do you. And to live in that relationality means that our theory of intelligence is not about the divisible intelligences, but actually these functions of societal intelligence or collective intelligence. I hate the fact it's called collective because it creates a theory of boundary. So I think we need a new language on that. I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I don't think intelligence is bounded in that format. And so when you talk about that, we don't actually have the framework. So what is, you know, how does a city measure the collective intelligence of its place? We don't have a theory of asset. So actually, when you don't have a theory of even measurement, if not, then no theory of asset or valuation and no theory of public accounting on that, then it's a massively underinvested framework, yet we know it's a source of value. So I think the great divergences we're seeing is the kind of landscape where where value lies and our accounting and institutional frameworks are nowhere close to where value lies. And that distance is... That distance itself is the place of arbitrage. So I sit here with great hope because we know where value lies, yet our current frameworks of our comprehending value don't are not close enough to that. That to be able to arbitrage that gap is going to be the great leap of humanity. And this is not beyond our wit. You know, like we know whether it's collective intelligence or whether it's actually biological systems or ecological systems of our environment, or whether it's the mental health of a city, or whether it's the air quality of a city, or whether it's actually the light, uh, a lack of light pollution, these are foundational societal assets which have massive impact on our collective well-being and development. Yet we currently don't value them. Yet we don't have them as asset classes. So that gap is the place of arbitrage, and that's entirely the focus that we have at Dark Matter: is how do you start to reinvest in those critical common goods of the 21st century that are the foundation of our actual where the source of value is. Currently, our source of value is largely on the landscapes of where value is privatized and where value is made discrete, as opposed to where value is generated. And I think the kind of, you know, going back to the boring revolution, for me, the boring revolution is actually bringing us closer to the truth of where value is generated rather than where value is consumed. And I think that is a leap and that's a function of a new capability, as we've spoken about, new, new bureaucratic capability that's opening up that landscape. It would be very interesting to get into a bit of the work that you're doing at Dark Matter Labs, trying to surface that generated value and picking it up at the at the source. If I may say, you have a couple of projects like trees as infrastructure potentially, and then the research that you did around the High Line in New York, which has some indications. So maybe we can get into that. But when you also do that, are you able to speak also about how we measure collective intelligence? So yeah, DML work on how do we get the value at the source? And then how do we measure if there's any work that you've started doing on that as well? Yeah, we know we're doing quite a lot of work. All of our work is on kind of effectively sort of common goods. So let's, let's take this building we're sitting in. Middle of Berlin, reasonably valuable, I suspect. If we were to take this building and move it to the middle of, I don't know, uh, Nova Scotia, 
what is the building worth? Not very much. Because the building's value comes from actually its um, monopolistic access to multiple common goods, transportation systems, labor markets, the collective intelligence of Berlin, the culture of Berlin, the kind of transportation, all of these other frameworks construct its value in many formats. Yet what we've seen is the value being traded at the level of the divisibility of the building, actually with very few reciprocal gains on all those common goods. So what we've, and I would argue this has been the mass um, enclosure of wealth of the 21st century and the 20th century. Uh, as we saw the enclosure of land, we've seen the enclosure of common goods through the theory of private property. Now, same thing. Let's try the High Line. So we did some research work where we scraped all the data. The High Line cost $184 million to build, and it generated $3.48 billion in land value. Okay. That, and this is when you discount all of Manhattan's general increase. It's just attributable value. When you look at that, what you start to very quickly realize is that that value of $184 million generated vast amounts of privatization of value which is entirely privatized into the, own, uh, into the landowners themselves. And I think that's a really symbolic of this idea of how common goods construct vast amounts of value, which is entirely being privatized. The same is true for a state school in the UK. An outstanding state school puts nearly £100,000, £70,000 to £100,000 on the price of private housing. A tree-lined street puts seven to £10,000 on each house next to it. So Common goods construct vast amounts of value, which is entirely being privatized. And the question is, and also whether it's air quality, actually our individual cars generate vast amounts of micro, um, micro rubbers and sort of other things into the air, which has degradative effects on our collective outcomes, both in terms of our intelligence, but also our health outcomes and various things for kids and other things. Yet those are not priced or valued. So it's always on the positive side and the negative, on the kind of positive externalities as well as the negative externalities that are currently unpriced into the system. And, and you obviously CO2 is a classic example. If I was to take um, a can of cola and an apple, I've used this example before, but you know the can of cola massively externalizes CO2 addiction costs, all these sort of things, which are outsourced in society. Yet at the unit cost level, it's relatively cheap. Whereas actually a sustainable orange, which was deeply sustainable, looked after the soil, would be healthy for you, would be regenerative for the soil, would be relatively expensive. Now, our society is biasing towards the can of cola. Our society is biasing towards the privatization of wealth at the level of the house. Our society is biasing towards effectively the, uh, the consumption of, you know, why do rich areas in the US have trees and poor areas don't? Because actually the, the tree is currently a liability. It has an insurance cost as a maintenance cost, yet actually its benefits are non-priced and non-valued in the system. So I think, and you could, we could talk about the collective intelligence of a city, we could talk about the culture of a city. And what I suppose I'm getting to is that increasingly, not only do we know this, right, the data bit, actually we have kind of radical ways of actually being able to orchestrate and share that value in new ways. So in, as a result of doing the work on the High Line, we started to talk about how do you use smart covenants to share value in different ways. So as a result of looking at how do you build structured economic systems as part of uh, trees, uh, trees of infrastructure, how do you get 600 communities to actually invest in building urban forests? And how do you organize that in a way that's also a hybrid economy? How do you do the aggregative benefits in terms of flood risk management, air quality effects? How do you measure that value? How do you map that value against the liability owners? Because we're all liability owners in terms of some of those effects. How do you construct these landscape level effects into different formats? How do you construct these new economic assets matching the liabilities to the asset owner, uh, matching the liabilities to the asset owners in different formats? How do you construct a hybrid capital economy, which means that a tree planted by communities has a 90% chance of survival uh, versus a tree planted by a municipality has a 50% chance of survival? because the quality of care and relationship is so fundamental to the economy of that. So how do you construct these hybrid capital, hybrid currency business models or value models that allow for transactions of care as well as transactions of finance in really hybrid formats? Now, where I'm at is that 
not only can we start to actually build some of these frameworks and build models which actually allow for more than money systems, uh, not only can we understand actually gift economies and care economies in relationship to shared transparent um, economies at the aggregate landscape level, we can structure those things. We can build structured economic systems which are multi-agent micro-value models which are actually ag- working at an aggregate level to be able to create those landscape level effects not only can we can build those new economies, and that I think is extraordinary. So for me, a lot of our work is how do you construct these next generation civic economies uh, as both hybrid, uh, you know, as, as new mechanisms of organizing. But the reason why we're doing it is because I think they're closer to location of value. And that I think is, whether you're a capitalist or not, th- that is the deep arbitrage. The closer you are to the tr- location of value creation, that is where value will be generated. And I think that's a new economy. But that will also require deep levels of trust because these common goods are fundamentally closer to rent-seeking systems, right? So how do you build new forms of trust into these common goods? It's going to be really critical and the value models that orchestrate around them. And that's going to require new theories of governance to unlock their value. So that's why I kind of hated the whole (laughs) intro in terms of kind of thought leadership around this. It's at the intersection of this stuff is the new world that's being created. And that's not new to me or anyone else. The reality is most innovation lies at the intersection of things as opposed to the divisibility of disciplines. Which might relate to the question I want to ask you because it builds a bit on on existing divisions of of roles and and different stakeholders. Um, is, Is there a specific focus in the we on the role of of bureaucracy government and if so what is that okay so i think it's a nuanced question at multiple levels i think philosophically i think we're in a crisis of of governance at a fundamental level and that crisis of governance is because we are moving from what i would say we move from the illusion of what I would say is sort of the sovereign being the king or the queen monarchy as a as a sort of sovereign of the land and the place to representative sovereignty through parliaments or through uh, chambers um, I think those forms of or the chanceries these these representative models of sovereignty to a world of mass multitudes of sovereignty where whether it's germany or whether it's the uk it parliament is no longer supremely so- sovereign neither is the executive and sovereignty has become a multitude and it's the coexistence of a multitude of sovereignties the citizen is also sovereign in their own landscape and this is no longer the citizen no longer delegates their rights of their sovereignty to the parliament that was the kind of conceit and the illusion but no longer no longer the reality of how people feel and the social contract manifests at the time so we've moved from the convenience of this kind of vertical hierarchy of representative sovereignty and the delegation of our powers to parliament to a complex mess of and a complex multitude of sovereignties and in which the public is an emergent function. The public is not a body. The public is an emergent function. And in that theory, our theory of orchestration is actually about creating the conditions for emergent coherence as opposed to creating, uh, having the rights of rulemaking. And in that context, 21st century capabilities are going to be about how do you build the sensing capacity of society, the sense-making capacity of society, and then how do we actually create the storytelling capacity of society to be able to narrate the world around us. And that coherence is going to require a different type of democratic infrastructure because it's no longer about the imposition, but actually the organization of actually how we sense, sense-make, and actually narrate the world around us. And in that narration, how do we construct a theory of value? I was listening to sort of a YouTube one. Somebody was talking about the, like the, the essential nature of business and how business was the center of growth. And I, and it, and I think we have to start to 
uncouple this these conversations. So the reason why I want to bring this in is that business is just a decentralized function of value discovery. It's just a tool. In a complex emergent world, it's just a tool of organizing. State is another tool of organizing. If these are different tools that have operational value in different scales and of operational value in different frameworks of discovery. Business is not against state, or nor is it for state. These are just different theories of organizing. And business is powerful because it's a dis- decentralized discovery mechanism of actually being able to discover value in a complex world. At the same time, profit is just a device. It's a proof of value function. In a complex emergent world, it's a proof of value function. Our problem is that profit has become an extractive indicator of how much are you asymmetrically extracting from the system rather than actually a system indicator of how much value are you creating for every stakeholder in your in your system. So in a way, in a theoretical sense, profit would be not just how much you extract, but actually a net function of how much generative capacity are you building in the system as a whole. And that would be a permissible profit landscape because it's a proof of value function. Why do we need a proof of value function? Because in a complex emergent world, we don't want value to be constructed and allocated centrally. So we need a decentralized model of proof of value function. Now, if you look at that through that lens, then you start to say that a multitude of sovereignties is really critical in a complex world because you cannot operationalize through a radically centralized or representative theory of sovereignty. And that, I think, is the crisis of our theory of democracy right now, which is still lagging in a theory of representative models of sovereignty and representative uh, centralized allocation into that into that way of seeing the, seeing the future. And that crisis means that we're no longer able to deal with the complexity of the transitions that we're facing. So this is why, and going back right to the beginning, this is why this transition is going to require a massive strategic investment in human development and our human development capabilities to be able to make this transition. And that's nothing new. The Industrial Revolution required investment in schooling infrastructure. Yes, that schooling was largely there to make us bad robots and to make us predictable or go into going to school, you know, going to school at nine and finish at three, make us predictable in that landscape. This is going to require us to build the human capabilities to deal with complex sense making and be able to sensing and sense making together in a deliberative format, building the landscape for conversational frameworks, building society not as a tool of communication, but as a tool of conversation. And that is a new capability that we're going to have to build at scale um, in ways that have historically not been possible. And assisted intelligences like people like Audrey Tang talk about in a very elegant way actually are going to be really critical because what they open up is new capacities for machine-assisted capabilities to actually bias us to have positive conversational frameworks and assist us to be able to have those frameworks in new ways. And those things are also coming in, in, in a positive sense. And that's a framework to ennoble the system. Governance becomes about the ennoblement of the system rather than the control of the system. And actually building that ennoblement capacity allows us to operationalize and unleash our full capacity in radical formats. So when you look at it through a whole system, this is a transition at a deep sense to a different modality of governing, which is far more structurally different to where we are. And I think that is a revolution itself. Are there examples of of that being done? So not necessarily talking about full modalities of government, but potentially examples of some policies that fall into that realm. I think of an example that was shared with you before by one of the podcasts you appeared on, which is the issue of soil taxation in Sweden. And it makes me think of bringing together two themes you mentioned. One is this idea of the proof of value and how it translated into the the high line and what you mentioned about the massive gap of investment needed in order to retrofit buildings. I'm, I'm asking this because I'm trying to also get to what potentially could be a concrete example of that how and where a policy initiative is one element of, of what you call this enablement of, of having this infrastructure to make this change possible. So I think there's, uh, at, a, at a sort of small sense, you would argue that citizen assemblies and citizen juries are frameworks of new conversational, emergent conversation landscapes of being able to do. At a more macro level, you could say the political will that's happening across Europe to actually say, let's invest in 
you know, tree canopies is recognizing that environmental goods are actually critical foundations of our economy. Our economy, as Kate Raywood says very eloquently, our economy is a subset uh, of our environmental um, uh, landscapes and not a superset. And so re- be- being able to invest into these new foundational goods is really, really critical. How do we build actually new ways of investing into our, uh, into our biodiversity, I think, uh, and our environmental landscapes is going to be really critical. I don't think it's going to be done through simple market taxation models like carbon taxes. I think we're going to have to look much more deeply into maybe even quantitative easing for actually rebuilding our biodiverse landscapes. And that's going to be a structural investment in society. I think we should be looking at this moment more akin to rebuilding Europe in World War II. And that's a scale of transition that we're facing. And I think we're underestimating what the scale is. So I think, you know, just to sort of a little bit back into this, so I think uh, Nate Higgins talks about this beautifully, I think, where he says, our civilization, 8 billion odd humans, sits on 500 billion human units worth of energy. So our total net energy of every year is 508 billion. In 2019 to 2020, the global energy demand increase was greater than all the installed renewables. The increase in demand was greater than all the installed renewables. So the scale of what we're facing is of an order of magnitude that I don't think we're fully recognizing. Um, and, and you know, I think there's some, some really good research that was done, like if you were to price social and environmental goods into, a, into S&P uh, 100 index, most companies, something like 68% of them, are non-viable. So what we've got is an economic model which has been largely predicated on the externalization of costs and not the production of actual value systems that are value. That is a structural regearing of our economy. It's not a kind of marginal gain issue. It's a structural regearing. And that's why I think more and more states are going to have to talk about radical industrial transition strategies. And that is going to require very considered transition of industries as they make their way through this economy. And that's going to be dealing with energy, materials, biodiversity impacts, social impacts. And I think there's going to be a whole new theory of value. What we value and how we value stuff is going to fundamentally change around us. And that it's going to be as significant as, say, the 19th century Industrial Revolution. It's going to change everything around us in deep senses. And visibly, and what we consume, what we relate to, I think is being, being able to be transformed. So I think in that context, we have to talk about the scale of what we're seeing. And I think the scale is reminiscent, like I said, of, of World War II rebuild of Europe. Uh, it's more akin of thinking at that scale. But we're seeing the political will for these transitions is more and more there. I think what we're missing is yet the institutional frameworks and the institutional logics that sit around it. But we're seeing experiments everywhere around this stuff. And those experiments, I know you're involved in deep demonstrations. To some extent, they are anchored in place in order to be able to find something that could be replicable across. Mm-hmm. So we come back a bit to this maybe dichotomy of, of local and place-based in order to be able to test. Do you face a bit of a challenge in, in, in getting across the point of we're living on a planetary scale, we need to do these um, tests locally and see how they work and replicate them? How does that work? Um, in one sense, no. In another sense, yes. So let me explain that. So there are policies across Europe to retrofit all of Europe. I think it's a quarter of a billion homes or something ridiculous like that. It's quite a large number. Yet, if you were to look at trying to do that, we don't currently have the mineral mining infrastructure or the demographics in terms of labor supply to be able to do this. So there's a policy landscape. And yet, if you were to look at the carbon budget, which most of Europe is subscribed to the Paris Accord, we don't actually have the carbon budget to do the mining to do the kind of retrofit that we're talking about. We don't have the copper supply to do probably the transition that we're talking about. We don't actually have the global timber supply. So, in one hand, yes. So as long as you take a proper systems view, there's an undeniability. And that means what does the retrofit of Europe really look like if you make this transition? How, what does it really mean? How are we going to actually live? And I think there's some hard questions that are going to come about in terms of what does material justice look like? What does material fair use look like? If you're living in a building, if, you're st- if you own a building and you're not using it, 
what's the social obligation for the material use and hoarding materials and thereby depriving other people from the use of those materials. So I think there's going to be some hard questions about what does justice really look like into that new material economy. At the other sense, I think what we're going to see, and this is not often discussed, and this is the dark side of this conversation, is that like every disruptive transformation, those with power, agency, and capital can reinforce their positions. So Europe, and maybe many countries in Europe, will be able to leverage its position to hoover up the copper supply that's available, the timber supply that's available, and critical minerals that are available. That will deprive other countries that need development from the capacity to be able to do it. Now, what's the implications of that? First of obvious implication is, well, they can't make the transition. So there's two pathways. One, they can't make the transition, they can't afford the transition, so they carry on burning oil, in which case we're all dead together, right? Second pathway is they can't make the transition, so actually socially and economically they fall massively systemically behind, and that level of actual economic disparity and inequality around the world also leads us to violence. So, and and in a world where both informationally and in terms of biological and other forms of weapons and the decentralization capacity of that warfare is so significant, I think we have to start taking seriously the systemic inequalities that we're going to set up into the frameworks of violence. And, you know, the kind of, there are sort of all these conversations about European autonomy and autonomous thinking, but autonomy in a kind of entangled world with decentralized forms of warfare is a very difficult thing to deliver. And it may even be a convenient political illusion rather than actually the reality of looking at our entanglement. And that's why I say more and more, I only see one pathway mutually assured thriving because every other pathway, I think, us leads us to mutually assured destruction because of the fundamental capabilities and the inequalities that we'll set up. So, yes, there's some hard questions, even at the level of place of just a simple thing of retrofit, that are some hard planetary level questions of what you see. So, and we, walk, we work at the intersection of that relationality rather than just at the boundary of place. We, we probably could spend a full other episode just on that specific point. Uh, there's a lot of interest in some of the work that was done by Dan Hill in the mission work and how he looked at place as a bit of a systems container, right? So that it's, it's this boundary where we can just explore these relationships, but eventually then being able to, to replicate this. But to switch gears, you, you mentioned the word violence, and I know you also pay a lot of attention to language, and you say that the English language currently is very limited to describe the transition that we need to go through, the future that we need to imagine. Looking at things from that perspective of language, looking at specific words, I've, in preparing for this, I've listened to quite a few of your conversations lately, and I noticed, or maybe before I ask you what I've noticed, what have you noticed in your evolution of your own language with, with respect to this transition? No, I'd love to hear your patterns. <laughs> it's always better to hear it from third parties. I mean, I, I wrote three words, violence, self-termination, and war. And I think I detected the pattern starting from last year's Creative Bureaucracy Festival where you, you mentioned there's a war being waged on future generations. And since then, in a lot of the conversations you've been having, violence described the current extractive system and the age of human dominion. Is this reckoning that the boring revolution might also be a violent revolution? Um, I think it's the other way around. It's recognizing that our current system is fundamentally, we are living in an invisible war. And our current institutional frameworks are perpetuating that invisible war. And it's a war that we do not perceive because actually it's a war of micro-violences but aggregative level are self-terminating us. It's a kind of invisible micro-war, which is actually, whether it's at the level of our mental health or whether it's air pollution, which is terminating, people, you know, killing millions of people around the world, or whether it's actually CO2 levels that are going to potentially kill billions of people if we don't sort it out, or whether it's microplastics. So I, actually, it's the other way. I think it's recognized that our current institutional frameworks are frameworks that are self-terminating us and are driving systemic violence to both present and future generations, humans and not more than human systems. 
And it is then recognizing that we need a new great peace. And more and more, what I'm concerned about is that our current frameworks of war are going to put us into competition theory with us. Europe versus US or Europe versus China, Europe versus UK. And these competition theories are actually going to accelerate the institutions that we have to drive us towards mass, more mobilized competitive extraction, which will actually terminate all of us. So I the frame, the why I describe the way I do is to be able to say, we need a new great peace. We need a new the institutions of a new great peace. And this will have to be done for mutually assured thriving. And that is a pathway not only for a new theory of value, which I talked about earlier in terms of these new commons or entangled value frameworks, but it's also a pathway for actually massive planetary consciousness and a new theory of planetary development, which I think is really key. So I mentioned the theory of war in the context of our current institutions and recognizing where we are. Some people might be using similar language or words in describing a bit of the work of um, Extinction Rebellion and some other groups. In, in a short discussion with, with uh, Charles uh, Landry on, about this, where he said he was rather skeptical and critical of the work of, of people like Extinction Rebellion and then started seeing more of the values of the actions bringing the discussion to the surface and maybe bringing us to a more informed level of, of, of consciousness around things. I called this a portfolio approach to resistance or to advocacy because all of these elements are needed. Is part of what you're trying to do in, in assigning the word violence to this, yeah. a provocation, is it to make the discussion somehow equal? Meaning like... No, I'm just trying to describe the hard reality of people dying. Like, I'm really not trying to give it... I think because this is a statistical war, it's a war of micro effects. We don't perceive the blood on our hands. We're living through the one of the most significant sort of species extinction and level events of the planet. We don't see the violence. So I think the words are important to be able to actually frame what's happening because of its invisibility. And and I also want to be clear, I think Extinction Rebellion and all these sort of acts of systemic resistance are critical, and they are critical. And it is not in the reactive control of action and reaction that we're going to make the transition. And we're going to have to find a new synthesis. And why this is a deep co-transition of how we relate to the world. It's not a war of just carbon, it's just a symptom of the problem. It's a much more structured framework of reimagining our relationship to the world. So this is the kind of, this, the war of symptoms is really critical to allow us to become conscious of the problem. But the problem is much deeper. And it's a problem of the boring revolution, the deep codes of our societies, and reconfiguring them to a new theory of value. So it's important to recognize that. I think these are really important tools of consciousness raising. But I think there's a kind of new transition space that's, that's beyond them, which is really vital. You started to explore this hidden deep code following your stint as, as an architect, um, if I understand correctly. So the podcast is titled Curiosity That Matters, and I'm very interested in seeing when you became curious about this, what type of questions started popping up? Because you seem to use writing as a tool to explore your own curiosity. At least this is what we see publicly, which is the, the writing on, on Medium, uh, provocations, um, your, your threads on Twitter to some extent, but you also mentioned at some point that written language is inadequate for transmitting the thoughts that this is about, um, and visual is potentially much more interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's also just important to decenter slightly this from myself. I'm part of Dark Matter Labs, and we're, there's nearly 60 of us. And I suppose what I'm interested in is like, how do you build an organization which is not organizing for control, but organizing for learning and curiosity? How do you build an organization where the real work is when you don't know what the work is? To figure out what is the work? How do you build an organization which is able to operationalize into the unknown as opposed to operationalize and proceduralize the known? Those are fundamentally different types of organizations, and they actually require different capabilities and different 
ways of communicating. The problem of written language is that if I write an essay, it is a it is largely a a, a sequential f- argument framework, and actually most arguments are not just sequential. They're not one fact after another. They're a compounding of multiple facts or multiple inputs that are actually biasing, cajoling, informing the system to make certain types of choices which have multiple effects and effects outside that system. So that no longer a sort of single PowerPoint or a written piece of text is actually poor describer of those realities. And then when we know that 80% of communication is nonverbal, 80% of communication is actually all sorts of social cues, our theory of communication can't be resist, can't be limited to the idea of plain English communication because most of the communication is actually much broader than that. And it requires a theory of empathy and conversation. So the quality of an effect of a dialogue is actually a function of the empathy to have the conversation, to allow people to be able to explore the conversation with you and to create the landscapes of that. That's a different type of frame. Of, so that's, you know, we're currently exploring something called like how do we move from visual communication to visual conversations? Because, you know, somebody... I was at Link Road uh, doing a talk with Civic Square. And one of the nicest moments for me was like, you know, an 85-year-old gentleman walked up to me and sort of said, Indy, I didn't understand everything you said, but you put words into things I was feeling. And for me, that was really interesting because it was actually about the nature of what we're doing. We're giving language and frames to each other to be able to wrap and see the world differently. And this is why the words are really important and how we construct this, and how we construct the logics, and also give, give ourselves frameworks of it. But also, let's not over-privilege ourselves, because the reality is everyone is feeling this reality. All we're doing is giving words and wrappers to give actually shared meanings in different formats, but people are feeling this. So, yes, I, I think curiosity for me has been a, it's not a curiosity per se, it's just an, a recognition to go to find more root causes and find more deeper fundamentals that are the implicate order, the, the, the thing that actually defines the world around us. And I think this is where slowly, whether it's you, uh, you can use architecture, you can use any lens. If you follow the red thread, you, fi- you get to some of these baseline positions. And, and these, you know, I also like people like Stuart Kaufman's work on adjacent possibles, because I think exploring the world through adjacent possibles and that's partly what i've done and partly what dm's done is like is just explore the world through adjacent possibles explore one thing then explore the next adjacent possible and work your way through the system and that is not a strategy of linear prediction and control that's a craft strategy of exploration and i think craft is a really important word as much as curiosity because it's a didactic relationship with the context that you're operating in in an emergent form of discovery, an emergent form of innovation, into that context, so you discover the, you know, as a sculptor would say, you discover the statue in the marble. It's, it's discovered uh, in that framework. So I think that's a lot of where our work sits. I'm resisting to ask more about how this is operationalized at Dark Matter Labs. Now that you're 60, now that you're growing, I think you even wrote about how challenging it is to keep building an organization with such a learning capacity but um have a look at our blogs on that there are some really good blogs written by annette damani and other people on actually some of the kind of organizational innovations i think to build a relevant organization in the 21st century you're going to have to root it in a theory of compound learning and curiosity and unless you can build an organization that's rooted in compound learning, I don't think you're building an organization which is able to deal with either the complexity or the emergent functions of, the, of, of theories of value creation. Yes, commodity systems can be able to do that, but human economies, which are actually human economies of exploration, were going to require compound learning at the back end of it. And that's going to, that's going to require us to reimagine employment contracts, or it's going to require us to reimagine every form of kind of power structures, risk holding frameworks, you know, what I don't, you know, we don't have a CEO model. I think more and more we're moving towards a kind of chief learning officer model. And how do you build the learning capacity of a system? So I think this deeply restructures the organization. And we're moving away from the organization as a simple executive command and control structure 
to an organization as a compound learning evolving system, which is fundamentally different and requires intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic incentives. So you have quite a different organizational frame at the center of it. We've written loads about it. We are practicing loads about it. I don't think you can make, you know, if you want to make the 21st century, you're going to have to operationalize it from quite a different form of organization. And your letter at the turn of the decade was super interesting for me as a read of how you're looking forward to this. I'm trying to work within within a, a collective also of just bringing people together that are driven by curiosity. Literally, the, the, the motto of that is equal to the motto of this um, podcast, which is curiosity that matters. And I found it influential in how one could think about a future organization. Makes me think that would actually be very interesting. There's a company called Pager. They they help companies do internal podcasts. I would love to be listening to internal podcasts about Dark Matter Labs because I think maybe writing is one way, but also how these conversations happen internally is... Funny, funny you say that. We'll be doing a whole bunch of podcasts internally, uh, which we'll be issuing them soon. Uh, so we're starting in July, uh, where I'll be sort of doing a bunch of interviews internally with all the different people leading different aspects of DM and to build that out. Because you're right. I mean, I think that's also... Because the reality is DM is a whole group of people. It's a, that's been one of my biggest things is that I've been in too many organizations where leadership or the, was defined to one or two people. It's boring. I wanted to be in a group of people that are all extraordinary. And I think there's some really brilliant people across all of DM. And to be able to build that internal, uh, build those external conversations. So that's coming. That would be, I don't know if they're going to be publicly shared, but they will be. Oh, amazing. amazing. I really look forward to that. We are out of time. So I would want to jump to some closing questions. I'm very intrigued about why you call yourself mission holder at uh, DM. Yeah. So I, I see roles as being, um, as evolutionary pathways. And I suppose I've been shedding and as DM has grown, other people have ta- come in and taken roles. What I'm really holding right now is the 24 month to 36 month directionality of, of DM and being able to construct the relationships and the pathways for that 24 month to 36 month horizon. So that's really the landscape that I operationalize and I sort of lead on. Uh, again, I'm not alone in that. There are other people that are supporting and orchestrating around that. And it was also to recognize that because we operate as a constellation of leaders, there's different aspects of leadership that are required to be able to organize a system like DM. And that's just one role that I play now. And it's the role that I play is around that 24 month to 36 month horizon. Um, And I think being able to construct that pathway is really critical. So that's a lot of where my work is, both in terms of building the field of conversation but also then building the field of capabilities and the special projects that are required to be able to start to test and explore those realities. This is in relation to the organization and your role there. If I was to ask you, and we didn't have time to properly cover your thoughts about the theory of self, but if I was to ask you, how has your theory of self evolved throughout this whole journey? It's a good question. I don't, um, it's, it's probably, if I'm really honest, it's probably insufficiently evolved. I think there's a kind of probably a gap, um, an, an honest gap between what I can perceive and what my manifest reality is right now. So I think that's probably work in progress. But they also say, you know, like the people that can see the bridges aren't necessarily the people who are going to cross the bridges. Indy, we can go on and on. I want to end with this closing question. This show is about exploring curiosities that matter. What should I explore next and who should I talk to? I would suggest talk to Dan Hill. Obviously, I I think he's an extraordinary thinker and practitioner. And I think that kind of ability to craft and think is, I think, both critical and rare. And I think he's operating in a landscape of quite structured hope, which I think is also really beautiful. Hoping this is one of multiple conversations to come. Indy Johar, thank you so much. An honor. Thank you for inviting me to be part of it. That's all we have for this episode. Curiosity That Matters is produced by me. Editing by Simon Valero from Studio 361 in Berlin. Theme music by my friend Ramzi Khalaf. You can find him on Spotify using Sundowner 
or Instagram by searching for Sundowner Music. Check out ctmpod.fm for show notes and more relevant resources. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, now X, with the handle ctm underscore pod. And we're also on LinkedIn if you look up the Curiosity That Matters podcast. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with three friends who might be curious about this topic and help them subscribe. You can also help us be discovered by leaving us a review. It'll only take you 30 seconds. I'm Nadim Shukair, and I'll see you next episode.